0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Emily Neumeyer and today we have with us Dr. Renata Hollid, who is the College for Women class of 1963 term professor in the humanities at the University of Pennsylvania where she teaches Islamic art and archaeology in the history of art department. She's also a curator in the Near East section at the University's Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology and uh, most importantly for today's podcast she is the director of Of a multi-year project investigating the landscape and archaeology of the island of Jerba, uh, in Tunisia, which is mostly what we'll be talking about today. So, uh, Dr. Hallid, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that I I don't think we've actually covered on the podcast, and that's the topic of archaeology and archaeology in the Ottoman world, and we'll be talking specifically about the project at Jerba but also thinking a little bit uh, more broadly about um, how the discipline of archaeology and landscape studies can contribute to our understanding of the Ottoman world. And I think most notably, uh, perhaps it's potential to tell what we could call, say, a history from below and speak to to large-scale changes um, uh, in the early modern period. Perhaps it might be best for, for us to start with, with the project. Could you give us an uh, understanding of where Jerba is and the, the broad goals and, and methodology of, of, of the project? So
1: one day I'm sitting in my office and I am introduced by a colleague of mine to Elizabeth Fentress, who um, is an archeologist that has worked in various locations around the Mediterranean. She invited me to participate in a project that would be mainly an archaeological survey project and the site for this would be an island immediately off the coast of Tunisia and uh, what is interesting about this island is that geologically speaking is simply a continuation of the mainland. So we set off on this project, um, we went for a, a first look in 1994 and then actually started it in earnest uh, from 1996 through 2001. Uh, the uh, first volume of the survey that dealt with uh, the very early prehistoric um, classical um, um, that is Greek and Roman periods as well as late antique up to the year on uh, seven um, five hundred or six hundred we've already published. Um, it's called Island Through Time, Jerba Studies, Volume 1. We have this uh, on the bibliography, and what I'm going to be talking about is mainly uh, the studies that will be coming out in Volume 2 that essentially cover material that um, is datable from 600 right through uh, to um, 1800. In these, this latter period, um, it will be supported or uh, is supported by extensive archival research as well.
0: Why did you select Jerba as as a as a site? Uh, why and it's why an island?
1: I don't know that uh, we you know we looked uh, we would have done it anywhere else. It is easier to contain it to be sure. It's uh, it gives you a kind of a natural limitation at the time there were a variety of archaeological surveys both extensive and intensive throughout uh, the mediterranean uh, seaboard particularly on the northern side as well as the the so-called libyan valley surveys so it's a continuation of the same kind of exercise that is you look at a region uh, you have to um, you have to imagine the past uh, in a regional way rather than in, in uh, and excavating one particular site.
0: And this this leads us into, into a discussion of how are you investigating um, the landscape of the island and how it changed over time? What were the different um, projects that you had on the ground?
1: So essentially, we do a walking survey. Mm-hmm. Um, a walking survey that in this particular case is a probabilistic random sampling of... Um, a, a transects that are um, a hundred meters uh, wide each uh, across the territory of the island, and essentially uh, we have teams. We have teams of five people walking uh, twenty meters apart, and it's simply just uh, walking through square by square and noting any kind of um, ruin that would be on the surface. Uh, the, what is important to note here that Jerba has uh, a surface that is fairly easy to survey because it's not covered by any kind of uh, you know permanent ground cover so there were no forests there were no uh, brambles to uh, go through and that uh, made it all the more visible uh, so that there is that aspect of it that became very very important for us and uh, therefore e- is much more easily mappable than A similar acreage would be, let's say, in uh, somewhere where you have a very heavy ground cover. And so we chose this procedure uh, in order to derive most from the surface. And in order to do this, not only did we map every single ruin, small or large, that would be uh, in a square, but at the same time, uh, once we understood that this was, we called it a site, and so here... Each of the um, uh, walking teams would have one person who was a more um, experienced surveyor. Uh, would Would call something a site. So say once we have a site, then we very carefully walk over the entire surface of the site and collect, uh, do a total collect of the ceramics uh, of the site because in fact that's the only thing that's left. So at some level, you have mapping of uh, of the territory and collecting of ceramics off the surface of that territory.
0: So you would just be picking, uh, and I mean people Anything. who aren't experienced uh, in the in the field of archaeology, uh, it might be a little helpful to talk a little bit more about sherds. I mean, you, you'll just find pot sherds on the ground and you're well, just it's, from all periods, right?
1: <laughs> this is actually what um, what is interesting. People can't really believe it. Yes, that you are essentially mapping detritus of human human activity, and what remains over time are ruins of buildings and potsherds. Mm-hmm. So Just in on or, the ground, on scattered, the ground. Um, and and of course you you have more or less scattered potsherds. Uh, so uh, you begin to actually develop typologies of buildings as well as typologies of ceramics.
0: And the general idea is that if you find, say, a large concentration of Medieval ceramics in a particular area. This is an indication that there used to be a settlement there. Yeah. This yeah.
1: is sort of more exactly. or less the idea. And because, uh, you know, <laughs> people just throw things away. And so the, the, there would be somewhere along the line, they, you know, all of the broken dishes are not going to be carted out God knows where. They're just going to be put outside in the garbage pit. So you're basically coming many, many uh, centuries later and essentially looking for <laughs> this sort of detritus. And and the reason that we develop a ceramic typology is because that's what lasts. Paper doesn't last, uh, metal hardly ever uh, on the surface. I mean, this is all surface material. Now, in addition to this, for selected locations, what you do is also what we call test trenches, where for a particular purpose, you want to actually determine the sequence, uh, an archaeological sequence. So, in fact, in addition to our mapping activity uh, through through walking survey. We also then returned to a site for two reasons. One is to uh, make a test trench, and the other would be to map much more carefully if we found that this kind of walking, line walking uh, of 20 meters apart was not really allowing us to map uh, most intensively. We then selected particular areas for micro surveying where uh, we took the most experienced of our teams. And we, so we had 30 uh, members uh, um, every single season. And then we would return and do extra hard-looking, if you want. And then, of course, there, there were the test wrenches, uh where we, we just actually excavated to see whether there was any change in the use of a particular site through time.
0: It, it's so striking to me how the volume of data material you really have to collect in the in really the years it takes to process this mm-hmm. type of information to really yield patterns uh for conclusions about how this site how this this island changed over time um in the end for the early modern period for the mm-hmm. the ottoman period and i mean we we're, we're saying ottoman but more or less could you sketch out briefly for us the so the time periods that okay, you we're so looking we, at. Okay, so we the
1: established a certain kind of periodization, uh, but in order to understand this, let's first look at the location where Gerba finds itself, and if you actually look at the Central Mediterranean, not only is it a geological continuation of the continent of Africa, uh, one on one hand, uh, geologically speaking, but it it also exists in a series of islands. Uh, that begins with Gerba uh, and, and along the coast um, um, up uh, to Kirkenna, the smaller islands until finally the last uh, on the middle uh, in, in the central Mediterranean is of course Sicily. Uh, this is the world in which Gerba exists. Uh, vis- uh, that is, uh, it has a a maritime character on one hand, and it is uh, part of the uh, continental. North Africa zone of uh, of Ifriqiya or the Maghreb on the other. It also exists within yet a third landscape, but we'll come to this in a minute. And this is basically the pre-Sahara and why this is important.
0: So again, you know, we usually talk about Ottoman history or history in general. We really usually classify periods according to political orders, mm-hmm. right? The Ottoman Empire, the Roman Empire, things like this. To what extent can we use those, can we or can we not use those kinds of periodizations when looking at things like ceramic typologies? Um, Were those useful or did you have to devise another type of periodization?
1: That's a good question. Um, So looking uh, at a territory from the ground up is um, an entire exercise, particularly when this territory first of all, uh, creates its own ceramic. And so household ceramic is created across the board. And then separately, there are the political factors at what point or another did jerba uh, belong to an, a larger administrative setup. So one way or another, uh, during the, uh, the Ottoman period, uh, once the Ottomans are advancing across the southern um, uh, Mediterranean zone, Of course, uh, they attempt to establish control over uh, all of these territories, the coastline in particular, whether it's Tripoli uh, or it is Tunis. Jerba, as an island, had already had uh, outsider inroads uh, right throughout its medieval history, mainly the Normans. And then, uh, again, there was an attempt by the Hafsids of Tunis to get a foothold, and finally it was the Ottomans that essentially take over the fort that is, uh, one of the forts that is on Jerba, as well as the other, the so-called the Northern Fort, or, uh, and then it's called Burj Ghazi Mustafa, which is essentially uh, redone as an Ottoman fort. But that fort does not essentially define the territory of the island as such. The territory of the island is inhabited by a sect of Islam, that is a um, a subset of the Kharijis, and it is the Ibadi's uh, that divide themselves in yet two separate divisions, the Wahhabi and the Nukari. Uh, both of them are there on the island, and they are the ones that actually make the order of um, of settlement on the island. Uh, in addition, there there is a very long-standing Jewish community that essentially exists in two different specific loci and has existed through time um, until uh, very recent days. So if one were just to look at the political history, you would really not get uh, the full details of the uh, habitus of the island. For that, you actually need to you know, get your feet on the ground.
0: Basically, when you're walking, when you when you when uh, your team was walking and picking up ceramics, I mean, my understanding is uh, from looking at some of your materials that they were more or less dividing classifying ceramics, basically medieval and modern, right?
1: Well, actually, it's actually much more, somewhat more complex because Jerba being a, uh, a tree-growing economy was, um, in the medieval and early modern periods, mainly producing olive oil. Olive oil is, of course, produced by planting uh, olive trees. Olive trees essentially define the medieval and early modern landscape of Jerba. This is not what Jerba was famous for in the earlier periods. It was most famous for the production of purple, which is produced out of shellfish. The, murex. Murex, okay, dye. and uh, that entire production simply disappears. So once we get into the medieval periods, we have in fact also what we have suggested an influx of completely different kinds of settlers. They settle in a rural way rather than having large scale uh, urban entities and proceed to uh, utilize the territory for the growing uh, of olive trees and the production of olive oil, which they then trade for grain uh, with in fact uh, various places from the northern Mediterranean coast now when they become incorporated into the Ottoman Empire the olive oil jars that in fact we find uh, throughout and they're uh, called in the Italian records jarre jarbini can be found throughout even the the eastern Mediterranean uh, they're trading with their olive oil uh, as as far as the markets will will take them which is actually very interesting and and hard to truly understand. I mean, uh, surely uh, there was olive oil available, all kinds of olive oil. But apparently, Gerba uh, olive oil had a particular cachet. And so, yes, they are they are, they are definitely trading in many different locations.
0: So you were finding evidence not only for domestic settlement, you know, like cooking wares, things like yeah. that, but also for economic transport. Uh, what's the difference between a, what's the physical difference between a Gerba jar? Yeah. For olive oil. Like, what, what is it when you pick something up from the ground? How can you tell? It's, well, it's a okay, so this is, this is a, how uh, you make uh, just a, you know, a this um, container for the house. Uh,
1: well, I don't know whether you've heard that term uh, because, of course, in, in archaeological circles, uh, there there are, is a category <laughs> of ceramicists that are called amphora jocks. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and basically, these are people who spend their entire life looking at uh, uh, these very important uh, remnants of trade. Yes. And so you have wine amphora and you have oil amphora. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the Jada Gerbini is simply a smaller uh, size of the older amphora, uh, oil amphora. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're actually about half the s- size. And there's even a particular measure that we find in various documents, which is called Kfiz Gerbi. So there is even a half amphora measure. Mm-hmm. So they trade that. Uh, olive oil, for uh, for grain. They they don't really grow. So are these jars? Are
0: they are they they're thick, are they quite thick, they're thick? Quite thick, as and, opposed to say a plate. Yeah.
1: Oh no. Yes. Yes. So it, essentially, um, Jerba has fairly good clay, and so we have in our field walking been able to discover any number of kilns. Mm-hmm. So and the kilns are uh, lo- have very specific locations, and so we have uh, been able to map. Uh, not only all of the the, uh, the kilns uh, of the Roman period, late antique, etc., but right through to the uh, early modern ones. And so we know that series quite well. Uh, these are yet different from household ceramics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might say that in general, uh, Jerba ceramic, if you want uh, tradition, uh, was uh, much more... Uh, or, or put put it this way: much less inventive than other uh, ceramic locations on the Ifriqiya coast, medieval Ifriqiya coast. So, for example, even even glazing, colored glazing, comes in here later than we would expect uh, somewhere further north. So, uh, but by the uh, by the Ottoman period, indeed, there is the full run. There is glaze ceramic, and there are also the various cooking wares as well as the storage wares, mm-hmm. and so. In the category of storage, whereas the, the the oil jars are yet a subset, but um, if you're if you know your ceramic ty- typology well, then when you're field walking, you can actually tell, either from the base or handles, etc., that it belongs to mm-hmm. one of these Jadbini, Let's right, say, right. okay.
0: So, in the documentation of all of these settlements over time, what are the major trends that you're seeing? in terms of um, the transition into from the classical and the medieval into the the early modern, or we can say the Ottoman period?
1: Okay. So the first major trend that we were able to document is that between about 560 and 900 CE, uh, you have the uh, large-scale abandonment of the older urban entities, and you have an infiltration or a switch into living in a rural, dispersed fashion. So uh, we either say, well, these are the same people and they live in a different way, or what we're suggesting is you have an influx of other sorts of settlers. And the the reason that we are uh, suggesting this is that what um what you have is at the same time uh, a um, if you actually map it against the large-scale population changes because of the Justinianic plague that raged in the, uh, in the Mediterranean from 540 all the way to 750. Uh, the hints of, at this uh, come from uh, the, uh, the narrative of the, the Islamic conquests that say that uh, when Jerba was conquered, it was a Qaria, it was a, a rural place. So they don't even mention that there were any cities of any sort, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's fairly clear that uh, from the archaeology, and this is uh, something that I've just uh, that people, to the extent that we could date the ceramic, actually lived dispersed in a rural way, and what's uh, and then when you actually look also at at the other factor here, and this one is the fact that Jerba, uh, in all of its medieval moments. Is mostly populated by a sectarian population that is different from the Sunni population of uh, large large areas of Ifriqiya or for that matter, um, any other uh, areas of the uh, other southern Mediterranean littoral. And I'm referring specifically to the population that is essentially Khariji and specifically Ibadi. This is the branch of uh, Islam. Uh, that developed an, an imamate in Tahert, uh, in um, what is today uh, Algeria, and then proceeded to expand itself uh, along the pre-Sahara. Um, found itself uh, on the island of Jerba and established uh, a variety of locations uh, right throughout the pre-Sahara all the way uh, to the Red Sea and finally uh, to uh, to Oman the um the abadi on jerba divided themselves again into two subsects the wahhabi and the nukari and the nukari seem to have been there first now the reason it's important for us to know this from the ottoman point of view is what happens to this sectarian inhabited island when the ottomans really um, get hold of it or begin to be a true presence
0: and this is about we can say mid seventeenth century.
1: Oh, well, it pro- probably even slightly early. I would mm-hmm. say b- from the beginning of the seventeenth century, and yes, by the uh, um, basically less, what yeah. we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And this is where now we come to um, a particular text uh, that has come down to us, and um, I just want to refer to it. This is uh, a lament that is written by um, a certain man called Saeed al al al, al-, al- Beruni. Uh, Datable at the latest in the mid-18th century. Uh, it's a fairly long lament. I'm not going to <laughs> cite all of it, but mm-hmm. let me just say, um, and, and quoting, ask them about their ruins, remains, and traces which have disappeared into the ground down to the last tombstones. Is there anyone visiting these renowned places? Ask them for an explanation of what has happened. How were the traces of their edifices erased? Is there anyone who cries to God, who weeps and learns a lesson and turns that knowledge to good? Not a chance. Fate left no room for regrets. So Said al-Biruni writes uh, about a certain moment uh, that clearly uh, he and many others of, of that particular uh, literate class are regretting, and this is that half the island seems to have turned Sunni. Uh, and it's very much under uh, the impact of the Ottoman con- Ottoman control, Ottoman direct Ottoman control, and/or control out of Tunis. Now why is this important in terms of what we found on the ground? So in our survey, we could not understand why it was that we had so many abandoned mosques. Well, it turns out that within Ibadi, habitus, the mosque belongs to its immediate congregation, what, they, uh, what is called in the text, Jamaat al-Musallin. And once uh, that congregation moves away, the mosque is abandoned. Why did, why did this happen across Jerba? And we found quite a few of these abandoned places. Is because within the medieval and early modern periods, this is really the first time after the Ottomans appear that we have the uh, the new development of a of a of a of a city. You would think why is this? That is very strange. So, rural habitus, all of this, uh, all of this time, uh, from the eighth century all the way to the end of the sixteenth century, it's because uh, within uh, um, I- Ibadi um doctrine. You cannot have a city, a medina, without having a congregational mosque, a masjid al You cannot have a congregational mosque when you do not have a righteous imam, an imam al-adl, al-imam al-adl. In the absence of an imam al-adl, none of this can occur, therefore no medina. Now, sometime uh, within this moment, uh, uh of the 17th century you have finally the building of a new congregational mosque in the northern uh market place the Homat al-Souq and from then on you actually it, it there, there is a uh, contiguous building and contiguous building and a um, um and a congregational mosque very much as an early modern feature mm-hmm. Parallel to this comes the uh, fairly large-scale abandonment of various areas, uh, particularly of the Nukari zones, because they have sunnified. Mm-hmm. They move into uh, the, uh, the the er, more, more densely uh, uh, packed settlement. They become the, uh, the the traders. They are the ones um, apparently that uh, that. Uh, you know, join uh, the possibilities of, of Ottoman uh, economic life to the extent that we can reconstruct it. And you can, and I was not as aware of it as I am now. Once we have actually had done all of these, we couldn't really understand why do you have such a large scale abandonment? Well, this is basically how we are trying to um, explain it,
0: and this is very interesting. I think uh, for for our listeners who uh, who have also listened to a, another earlier podcast that we've done with Hegnar Wattenpah, where we talked about uh, the 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 erection of of Ottoman mosques, uh, a particularly Ottoman type of mosque in, mm-hmm. in Aleppo. Yeah, that this that we also see this sort of what we could call say the Ottomanization mm-hmm. of of a, of a landscape, both both in Aleppo and and on the island of Jerba. So uh, for our listeners, I would encourage you to, to, to go back and, and also check out that episode as well. So I think here might be a good time for, uh, for a break. I'd like to remind our listeners that um, all of the, uh, we'll have uh, photographs and maps, and as well as a, a bibliography available on the website uh, for this episode at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Emily Newmeyer, and we're here again with Dr. Renata Holland, a professor of Islamic art and architecture at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. We've talked about the project at Jerba, but I think it would be uh, useful to find out a little bit more about the broader implications that this kind this project has on the field if we can call it that of ottoman archaeology um (laughs) what are what are some of the uh i mean do we even have a field of ottoman archaeology i think that's because i I, i'm i'm asking what is probably an impertinent question because Mm. i i think when most people hear the word archaeology they really have in their mind the prehistoric or the classical period this is sort of what people have in their mind so um what are we talking about when we talk about a field of, of, early, of archaeology in the early modern period, and specifically mm-hmm. for the Ottoman Empire?
1: Well, of course there is a field of Ottoman archaeology. Uh, you know, it, what you have to remember is that the history of archaeology, as it has been practiced uh, throughout, uh, you know, there was a time that any archaeologist with uh, their salt would just say, okay, let's get rid of this, uh, of this late stuff, and let's get into the real stuff. Kind of thing. Well, I think times have changed. So the nature of studying the nature of settlement from the ground up is a, a, a pursuit um, that runs parallel to archival work. Definitely, study of any kind of uh, historic tradition. Each of which has its approaches, has its technical, um, let, let's say, uh, aspects and then has the, the particular detailed questions as well as the, uh, as the larger, large scale questions. So in terms of the study of uh, territory, it's, it's very important to look over, for, for example, there are some major sites um, over uh, the entire Mediterranean zone. Can we even uh, talk about uh, the impact of the plague large scale? We're not going to find them uh, only in the registers uh, of the census, we're going to find them on the ground if we actually ask those sorts of questions. Uh, uh, will we know about uh, the changes in our agricultural habits? You know, in the importation of new cultivars, uh, the stopping of production of one thing, the startup production of the other. These are the large-scale questions that we can begin to ask, in addition to demographic questions that uh, are uh, become readily visible um, when we do these large, uh, regional, these are regional surveys, but a regional survey can, is only as good as, um, the specific typologies and chronologies of what it is that you pick up. And so th- this is why even then we, you know, uh, the details of, uh, Roman ceramic typologies and chronologies have been worked out years ago where, when we were starting to work on Jerba, You know when uh, our ceramicists would say like, okay, so here we are. uh, Exactly who has worked on, uh, you know, 15th century cooking pots? Uh, Well, hardly anybody. Right. Or, and so, so we actually at the same time as we were working, luckily we were able to find kiln sites. uh, with lots and lots of wasters. And so on the basis of this, we were able then to say, "Ah no, this must be such and such a place." So we were able to to refine uh, the the kind of uh, uh, ceramic typologies and chronologies that are were would be useful for us. So are regional surveys necessary? Yes, because not everything is available in the archives.
0: you know i, I, I you bring up a really interesting point that there has been so much important work done with these uh uh tax registers that are available for the 16th century and then they sort of come back online uh in the 19th century and then you have the the son-name. but you know there's really this giant gap yep. uh, in the 17th and 18th century mm-hmm. and i mean these 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 of course these records though they're quite uh comprehensive in in some cases are are limited and it strikes me that archaeology could be a compelling... Or or think of it dif- differently. It's
1: actually mapping. So when you actually do mapping, what do you actually need? How do you actually do mapping? Well, one is simply to go out into the territory and say, okay, what has been here? And how do you know what this is versus this? Uh, uh, when you said, you know, is it possible to do early modern archaeology? Well, <laughs> Think of uh, American colonial archaeology. Sure, <laughs> this is what they do. Absolutely. So, and I, I think that we we were faced on the in the Jerba project with the fact that, yes, we have a, um, a a series of of written sources. The written sources are very particular because they're either the outsider sources or they are the sources um, uh, from the, the from the Ibadi uh, sectarian mm-hmm. um, set. Mm-hmm. So each of them have very different rationales for existing. In terms of actual archives, though, uh, the archives are in Tunis. The Tunis archives only come online uh, fairly late. Uh, they are uh, also quite partial. So you know, there you don't ever get the the complete view of you know, um, uh, let's say zone by zone. Uh, farm by farm kind of survey mm-hmm. uh, so we've we've actually put uh, put together a variety of sources uh, that allow us then to to make some kind of reconstruction all the while understanding that um, just as our stratified random sampling um, is a, a is a method for uh, trying to understand the entire territory after all we only walked 13 p- p- point something percent of the territory. So too, a a review of the archival sources don't give us a year-by-year, moment-by-moment, you know, uh, possibility Mm -hmm. either. So Mm -hmm. both of them uh, are essentially a sampling.
0: Can you think of one example during, in the project where the use of archival sources and the material on the ground, you found a, a nice Uh, Confluence or uh, speaking back to one another, in the
1: sources um, uh, we were able to identify essentially a series of documents that were we which we actually were had access to right there on the spot of um, you know a a series of family documents uh, that show you uh, a passage over a certain series of generations of exactly how this particular place looked at particular time. Now separately from this we are able to actually map uh, a an estate of a certain of a certain size equally but that estate did not have any sources. Mm-hmm. So here you have the physical remains on one hand and you have the if you want uh, the paper remains on the other. Mm-hmm. So in that sense we were able to actually put them together and they are not quite coincident as one would expect. But one thing they did uh t- tell us very clearly that um for instance, how economic um, value was um, mapped into the territory. So, for example, you would have um, particular trees, the product of particular olive trees would be assigned to a particular mosque, for example. So it's not... um, And so in the... um,
0: Like as as a a waqf? As as, as a waqf, yes. Yes, uh
1: So, uh, uh, and then in the mapping of the Uh, of a particular estate that uh, was abandoned, we actually still found uh, remnants of exactly these kinds of groves. Mm. So in that sense, you do have the territory, you do have the ground-up material that coincides somewhat with what you would find in the sources.
0: Well, thank you. I think you've presented a a very interesting uh, case study that... uh, a a a long term project that really does show the uh, the value in undertaking these types of investigations into landscape to further enhance our understanding of 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 Ottoman space, especially on the periphery. I I think it's fair to say, um, um, in this case. So so thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, for for, for joining us today, and I will. Remind our listeners again that we will have a series of photographs and maps and a bibliography uh, on the website at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. This episode is also part of a larger series uh, we have on the the podcast called The Visual Past, which is a collection of episodes that uh, look at the range of visual material culture in the Ottoman world you enjoyed this this episode uh, you can also find uh, additional uh, material to look into and uh that's that's it for now uh again i'm emily newmeyer and until next time take care